0: e benvenuto. Hello and welcome. Welcome to episode three of City Breaks Florence, an episode which I'm going to call Around the Duomo. Having spent the last episode inside the cathedral and hearing some of the stories based on that, I wanted to spend this episode in the square outside and looking particularly at three buildings, which if you know anything about Florence, you've probably seen pictures of. And those three would be the Baptistery, so the rather smaller, vaguely lookalike building next door to the cathedral, the other one with the black and white marble façade, the campanile, so if you're a campanologist or you know anyone who is, you will know that that means bell tower, and the Museo dell'Opera del Duomo, which means the Museum of Works of the Cathedral. Opera as in opus, I expect, that musicians uh, write. And that's the museum in which many of the pieces originally sculpted for the cathedral have been stored and are on view. So we're going to do a little tour of all three of those and just hear some of the interesting facts about them and some of the stories connected to them. But before we do that, I wanted to linger just for a moment in the square itself, the Piazza del Duomo, because round the back of the cathedral there's a marble stone set into the paving, which is quite interesting in its own right. It tells the story of something that could have been very tragic, tragedy was in fact averted uh, which took place on january the seventeenth in sixteen hundred on that night there was a violent storm in the city thunder lightning pouring rain and fortunately most florentines stayed inside fortunately because if you happened to have been in the cathedral square that evening you could very easily have been killed because a fork of lightning hit the top of the cathedral and right up on top there was a large gilded copper ball which had been made by one Andrea Verrocchio. It was sitting on top of Brunelleschi's cupola. It had been there since 1472 but on that night it was struck by lightning and it came crashing down to the pavement. There must have been somebody watching because we're told that it actually rolled around the rim of the cupola before it dropped onto the paving stones but Uh, nobody was killed we do know that so whoever it was was watching from a safe distance but actually it did worry everybody and it took them two years to restore it and rebuild it and reposition it back upright on top of the cathedral that wasn't done until 1602 and the marble stone that set into the paving is exactly at the spot where the copper ball crash landed so if you're feeling brave stand on that look up at the top of the cathedral and hope that lightning doesn't strike. So, to the first of our three buildings, I'm going to start with the Campanile, the bell tower, which was begun in 1334 by Giotto. Um, In fact, it was worked on by other people as well, because he died um, before he finished it, so other people had to help uh, complete the work, and they were Pisano and Francesco Talenti. And we're told, in fact, that uh, Francesco Talenti looked at the calculations and got the back of his envelope out and had another think and decided that the tower was in danger of tottering, um, leaning over, Pisa style, presumably, and he decided to double the thickness of the base walls. So although it's always known as Giotto's Campanile, we perhaps have uh, Francesco Talenti to thank equally for the fact that it is still there for us to enjoy looking at and climbing up. And talking of climbing, you might be interested to know that there are 441 steps up to the top. Is it worth it, you think? I've already cl- climbed the Duomo. Why would I go up the Campanile as well? Well, it is a hefty climb. It is quite narrow, so that when you meet people coming the other way, that's a bit of a problem. But what you can say about going up to the top is that once you get there, you have, of course, not just the lovely views of Florence that you can get from the dome, you have views of the dome from close up from different angles Um, it's a great place to take photographs of the dome I think if that should be your thing. So how high is it? It's 80 metres high and that in itself is quite interesting because a few years before it was built so they started work in 1334 and in 1324 a law had been made to say that no tower should be higher than 40 metres this law was aimed really at the families, the rich bankers who wanted to outdo each other by building ever bigger towers on their houses. Florence authorities decided perhaps they have to put a stop to that. So they brought the law in. And I'm not really sure why the Campanile was not included in this. I think perhaps because it wasn't a dwelling, it was a building for everybody to enjoy. They must have overlooked it. So 80 metres high it is. It stands out for its height, it stands out for its lovely pink and white colour, and it's known as well, of course, as being the place where um, many wonderful statues by people like Donatello and Di Bartolo were to be found. In fact, today, quite a lot of the originals are not there anymore. They've been removed, they've been replaced by copies, so that the Campanile does still look as it was designed to look by Giotto and company. Uh, But the actual originals of many of the statues are to be found these days in the next-door museum, the Museo dell'Opera del Duomo. I think it was decided they would be safer from the weather there um, last more centuries. And also, of course, the other advantage is that you can have a proper look at them, whereas if they were still in place halfway up the tower, you wouldn't be able to see them close up. It's not just a collection of all the wonderful statues anybody could think up. There was an overall plan. It was decided that the decorations on the Campanile should illustrate humanity's journey from original sin to divine grace. And there are sets of statues, little groups of them that go together, that do that in various ways. So, for example, there are statues in honour of manual labour and there are statues dedicated to the arts. Um, to the sacraments, to the influence of the planets. There's even a set of statues dedicated to the virtues, and all of these you can see in the museum. Moving across the square then to the Baptistery, this is a octagonal domed building that you see next door to the cathedral, covered in the same uh, black and white marble, And it's actually the oldest building in Florence. It was begun a long time before the cathedral, about 200 years beforehand, in fact, and it was finished in 1128 or thereabouts, having been begun originally in the ninth century. As a building, it was dedicated to John the Baptist because he is the patron saint of Florence. That's, of course, why it's called the Baptistery. And it was built to be a Baptistery, And until the late 19th century, every baby who was born in Florence was required to be baptised there. In fact, in the 15th century, they brought a law in saying that every new baby must be registered in this building within 60 hours of birth. This wasn't a queue up and sign a form operation. They had a different system. So there was a box there called the birth box. And you were required to come along with a black bean if your new baby was a boy or a white bean if your new baby was a girl and to put it in the birth box and presumably at the end of the day or week or month I don't know somebody would count them all up and they would keep an eye on how the population of Florence was growing. Today right in the centre of the building inside you can see the spot where the font was kept because registering your baby wasn't the same as having your baby baptised that was done later Um. Once a year on March the 25th, which was actually uh, New Year's Day in the old Florentine calendar, that was the day when all babies born in the previous year would be baptised. So presumably some of them were tiny little dots and some of them were strapping great 11 or 12 months old babies. But that was the day on which it was done. So there are good historical reasons to go and visit the baptistery and think about those things. But in fact, the other main reason, perhaps the main reason why people go, is because there are one or two particularly spectacular pieces of artwork inside. Um, So one of those would be the ceiling, the mosaic ceiling created by a whole number of different artists, including some very famous ones, such as Chimabue and Giotto. The whole thing took over a century to finish, but it has an overall design. So it's eight concentric circles of mosaics. I think if you laid them out end to end, they would be twenty-six meters long. And these mosaics retell Bible stories, starting with Genesis and working on then through uh, the Old and New Testament. So there are lots of mosaics, for example, telling stories from the life of Jesus, and Being the Baptistery and dedicated to John the Baptist, also, of course, lots of stories featuring him. You may know a novel which was set in uh, Florence called The Birth of Venus by Sarah Dunant. And in there, one of her characters goes into the Baptistery and has this description of it to give. So, A golden cupola where the life of our Lord unfolded in dense and gleaming mosaics. That's what people go inside to see. Outside, the most um, sought-after artwork are the gilded bronze doors, and there's quite a story attached to the creation of those. Work began with the south door in the 1330s. Andrea Pisano was given the task of creating those, and he used the artwork to tell the story of John the Baptist in many of the panels. So the door is divided into panels, most of them in sequence tell the story of John the Baptist and then there are eight panels devoted to virtues Christian virtues worldly virtues there's a wonderful list of of the virtues that are included it reads like the names of some Victorian daughters from a very Christian family so they're dedicated to things like faith hope and charity humility and fortitude temperance justice and prudence a marvellous detailed piece of work just by itself Um, but more doors were planned in fact there was a bit of a gap then the next doors weren't begun for 60 years remember we're talking about the 14th century the south door was uh, created in the 1330s and you may remember that the black death came to Florence in 1348 um, and that put a stop to much of the work in 1401, it was decided that really they wanted to resume work on this and a competition was announced. Artists, we're told by Giorgio Vasari in his Lives of the Artists, were invited to submit, quote, samples of their ability. They were given a topic. They had to create a panel on the subject of Abraham's sacrifice. And then these would be judged and compared and the prize would be um, being given the commission to design some more doors for the baptistery. There were two main contenders once the entries were all sifted, and they were uh, Filippo Brunelleschi, a name you all know because he went on to design the dome, of course, and Lorenzo Ghiberti. And it was very difficult to choose between them. In fact, if you're interested in seeing their entries, you can, because both these pieces of work are in a different museum in the Bargello. Um, You can go there and look at the two versions of Abraham's Sacrifice um, presented by Brunelleschi and Ghiberti and see what you think. The judges at the time found it hard to choose, so they came up with a compromise. They suggested, well, why don't the two of you work together? This is such a massive project. We'll have two of you on it. Um, Brunelleschi didn't like that idea and said, well, actually, either he would do the work by himself or he wouldn't do it at all. And the authorities called his bluff and said, "Okay, then, Ghiberti it is. So Ghiberti designed the doors. He was actually only in his early 20s when he won the competition and he devoted the next 20 years of his life to working on the doors. So he designed the North Doors, um, which have 28 bronze relief panels, 20 of which tell the story of the life of Jesus. So the early one um, is on the subject of the Annunciation. So Mary getting the visit from the angel to tell her that she was expecting God's child. Then there are more panels showing the birth of Christ, his baptism, stories from during his life, for example, him overturning the uh, tables in the temple. And then the last um, panels are all about Holy Week. So you see in one panel, um, Jesus's entry into Jerusalem. Um, You see the Last Supper, the Crucifixion, the Resurrection, and right at the end, the descent of the Holy Spirit, so marking uh, what we call Whitson. So that accounts for 20 of the 28 panels, and the remaining eight were all dedicated, one each, to various saints. The whole piece of work cost 22,000 florins, and to put that in context, I read somewhere that 150 florins would be enough to feed a family for a month So it was a massive, massive investment by the city of Florence, really wanted this state-of-the-art project in place to show off their baptistery to really very best advantage. And Ghiberti's work was much commented upon. People saw a new thing there, something that they hadn't really seen before. And this was the fact that he gave his figures very much individual characteristics. Artists before him had tended to make their works representational, as if the point of it really was to tell the Bible story in its own right, and not particularly to make an artistic project of it. But Giberti very much gave people individual faces and little gestures they were making, which people thought made the figures come alive. And actually, this turned out to be really successful. People liked looking at them. There was much to look at and point at and talk about. So his work was very much praised. He's mentioned, of course, in Lives of the Artists, Giorgio Vasari's book, in which Vasari says the following, talking about Giberti working on his doors. He he says that he, polished it with such love and patience that no work was ever so carefully finished. And then following on from that, it was deemed to be such a success that Ghiberti was given a second commission to work on the East Doors, also going to be bronze and gilded. And for that project, he opted to go back to the Old Testament and tell stories from there. So you've got panels um, showing you Adam and Eve or Solomon or the Queen of Sheba. And again, very well received, much admired by everybody. And uh, the most famous project um, judgment on them is the one given by Michelangelo who when he saw them apparently said quote, they are so beautiful that they might be the gates of paradise and you will actually see references to the gates of paradise they've almost become called by that name so when you see that you know that it's talking about the baptistry doors and referring to Michelangelo's praise of them Just to remind you then, don't forget what you're looking at there is copies. To see the actual real doors, you need to go into the um, museum next door. And that brings us nicely to said building. So this museum was set up originally. The building was put up to be a workshop while the cathedral was actually being built. So it was somewhere where artists could store their work and have their apprentices and get on with their sculpting and painting and carving and all the rest of it. Um, but of course, once the cathedral was deemed to be finished, the workshop was no longer needed, and so it was kept. The building was kept, and it was it became eventually the museum, um, in which many of the sculptures and things like uh, Ghiberti's doors were orig- were eventually moved, uh, so that to keep them safe from the weather. Again, we could spend a whole episode on what's inside just that one museum. But since we would like to get to the end of Florence eventually and then go somewhere else, um, I'm going to summarise a little bit. So uh, an indication of the highlights. We've already talked about the doors. Um, there's an interesting room um, about with all the documents and displays on how the dome was designed and built. So if you want more information on that, that's the place to find it. And there's one room which is a replica of the whole of the cathedral facade, on one side at least. So that's a chance to see up close what you would see if you could hover um, outside the halfway up the cathedral, which of course you can't do. So that's a room uh, not to miss. Um, a statue that is much talked about uh, by people who visit is the one of by Donatello. It's a wooden carving, in fact, um, and it's a carving of Mary Magdalene. And it's a strange work. Um, she's dressed, in inverted commas, in her hair. So she's got very, very long hair, and it's wound all round her body, um, all carved in wood. It was made in about 1445. Originally, it was made for the baptistery, but... Um these days, it's in the museum here. It's one of Donatello's later works. He carved it when he was about 70. Um, although, in fact, uh, we do know that at the age of 80, he was busy in San Lorenzo carving uh, the pulpits there. We'll talk about that in a subsequent episode. But he was believed to be about 70 when he made the Mary Magdalene statue. And it does look like a mature work. It's a very serious, haunting sculpture. Um, words I've read in the guidebooks about it are things like um, penitent and prayerful. It's, it's a statue that once you've seen it, you can't forget it. Although, it was rather spoilt for me on the day that I went because I encountered a school group there, and they had obviously were following a quiz that their teachers had written them, and uh, this featured on it, and um, they were clustered round calling this lovely statue Hairy Mary which um, rather took the wonder out of it a little bit. If you're looking for highlights, I think another one would be a room called the Galleria del Campanile, so the Bell Tower Gallery, which is a room with 16 life-size sculptures and 54 bas-relief panels, all from the Campanile. So you've got, uh, for example, uh, the statue of Habakkuk, which Donatello crafted, It's deemed to be very, very lifelike, and Donatello himself apparently thought so and was given to shouting at it, we're told, uh, you look as if you could speak. And in that same room, there are Pisano's sculptures of the prophets, which a lot of people like to see. But perhaps of everything in the whole museum, the one statue that everybody knows and uh, that I would highlight particularly is the one of the Pieta by Michelangelo. It was actually in the cathedral until as recently as 1981, um, but it's been moved to the museum. Uh, It too is a late work. It's believed that he was about 80 when he did it. And it's the statue, you may well have seen pictures of it, showing Mary seated, cradling the dead Christ in her lap. And behind them stands uh, a third person, Nicodemus. People said at the time, actually, that Nicodemus possibly could be a self-portrait by Michelangelo. He put himself in it. Um, He intended this statue really to be for his own tomb, but he got to nearly finishing it when he found a fault in the marble and he was so furious that he had a bit of a fit of temper and he broke off one of Christ's arms in anger and refused to have any more to do with this statue. Although, in fact, fortunately, one of his students uh, took over the work, restored the damage that he'd done and finished it off. So we do have the completed piece, but it's here and not on Michelangelo's tomb as he had intended. So that concludes our tour of the three buildings uh, connected with the cathedral. And for the last part of this episode, I wanted you to go back to something that we've mentioned a few times and which you're going to hear so many more times uh, in subsequent episodes, and that is the subject of the Black Death. So Florence was plagued by the Black Death on numerous occasions, but the most terrible year of all was 1348, that year that we referred to earlier that caused a delay in finishing the baptistery doors, for example. And I'm going to read some extracts which were actually contemporary, written by Boccaccio at the time from his short story collection known as the Decameron. In it, he had quite a lot of work about uh, writing about the plague. Very graphic, gives you a a flavour of what it was like to live in the city at that time. And something just to bear in mind then whenever we're thinking about anything uh, from the 14th century in Florence. Okay, so this is how uh, the reading that I've chosen to start. So this is Boccaccio, writing way back in the 14th century. In the year then of our Lord, 1348, there happened at Florence, the finest city in all Italy, a most terrible plague, which, whether owing to the influence of the planets or that it was sent from God as a just punishment for our sins, had broken out some years before in the Levant, and after passing from place to place and making incredible havoc all the way, had now reached the West. He goes on to talk about how Florence saw this coming and did what they could to prevent it happening. Um, so he talks about how they kept the city clear of filth, how they excluded um, all suspected persons. So presumably if you were traveling from the wrong direction towards Florence, they might try and stop you coming in. He mentions the publication of copious instructions for the preservation of health. So the health authorities doing what they could to try and keep people healthy. um but he says rather sadly at the end that it happened anyway. Quote, notwithstanding manifold, humble supplications offered to God in processions and otherwise. So you get this picture of the people of Florence just knowing that this terrible thing was coming and feeling helpless to do anything about it, but trying their best, holding processions and, and so on, to try and plead with God not to do it to them. But sadly, it did arrive Um, and Boccaccio gives us some quite graphic descriptions of how you people who were afflicted suffered. So here's another little quotation. Here there appeared certain tumours in the groin or under the armpits, some as big as a small apple, others as an egg, and afterwards purple spots in most parts of the body, in some cases large and but few in number, in others smaller and more numerous, both sorts the usual messengers of death. And I'm going to finish uh, the last bit of the extract by reading you um, his views on how the doctors were useless and didn't do anything about it and what the general result was. So this is how he finishes this particular piece. Quote, "'The physicians, the number of whom, taking quacks and women pretenders into the account, was grown very great, could form no just idea of the cause, nor consequently devise a true method of cure. Whichever was the reason, few escaped.' But nearly all died the third day from the first appearance of the symptoms, some sooner, some later, without any fever or accessory symptoms. So just to put that into context, in a few months during 1348 and 49, it's estimated that in Florence, which had a population of a 100,000 people, about 60% of them died because of the plague. And over Europe, more generally, it's thought that 25 million people lost their lives just in that one year. And not only was it devastating in the fact that it led to all those deaths, it also had a terrible effect on society. So people obviously began to fear each other, to mistrust each other, to suspect that people were carrying the, the, the germs. It led to the breakup of families, even um, parents, in some cases, threw out their own children Priests were refusing to give the sacrament because they didn't want to come to houses and visit people who were suffering from the plague. So it really left the city completely in shreds. So just to round up then, we've spent this episode looking particularly at two of the buildings most associated with medieval Florence, the Baptistery and the Campanile. We've looked at the artwork from the same period, thanks to um, a quick hop into the Museo dell'Opera del Duomo, and had a look at the most devastating event to happen probably in the whole of the medieval period in Florence, and that's the arrival of the Black Death, particularly in that year 1348. So in the next episode, we're going to stay in medieval times. I'm going to devote it, in fact, not to a place this time, but to a person. Uh, Dante, so Florence's most famous, best-known uh, medieval author, We'll have a look at who he was, a little bit about his life. We'll have a few extracts of some of the things that he wrote. Um, And I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the places in Florence where you can go today to find traces of him. Um, So hopefully you'll look forward to that. Uh, Hopefully, too, you have enjoyed uh, what we've done today. So it just remains for me to thank you very much for listening and to sign off, as usual, in an attempt at Italian by saying grazie. Arrivederci.